Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Here's a deal, Emily, in my wheelhouse, or potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at Paramount Global, that's the old Viacom, CBS, and... Warner Brothers Discovery, again, the old Time Warner stuff, plus uh, the Discovery, that merger, David Zaslav is the CEO. Maybe those two companies getting together, which would be really interesting. Robert Fishman, he's a senior equity analyst at Moffat Nathanson, uh, and Robert's a longtime uh, street analyst. Moffat Nathanson, uh, pound for pound, the best TMT research on the street, in my opinion. That's why we like to talk to those guys when we can. Robert, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us here. Give us the rationale for a potential hookup between uh, Discover, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, well, again, this is all speculation at this point. I mean, the, the reports suggest that they clearly met this week. Um, in terms of the logic behind it, I, I think it, it really just comes back to the fact that traditional media is really starting to get more desperate. And why I say that is that the realities of the fundamental business at hand with linear advertising falling off a cliff and cord cutting continuing to accelerate and the costs of uh, switching and and pivoting over to streaming has really challenged a lot of these companies. So now they're all looking to figure out how, how can we try to get stronger. And the way that it seems most of these companies are trying to do that right now, at the very least, is try to have conversations to, to figure out who they can combine with. Robert, how do you see this deal going down, this potential deal yes. in Washington? It doesn't seem like the antitrust regulation would be very welcome to a potential deal this large. Yeah, we were surprised by the timing of, of these conversations and um, really comes back to, to two key points. Number one, um, there, there's a two-year lockup right now for Warner Brothers Discovery as part of its last deal with uh, Warner Media and, and AT&T uh, to come through on the other side of the reverse Morris Trust. So that leads you to April 24. But then coming back to your question, uh, given the regulatory landscape right now, it's hard for us to see how any deal would be approved in the current administration, um, or at the very least, what would have uh, significant review. 
And we pointed out in our report this morning the overlap between the linear cable networks and, and broadcast j just from a viewership standpoint uh, would would be something that that clearly would, would be looked at a little bit more closely, I, I think, given given the comp potential combination. Hey, Robert, you know, nothing gets done here unless Sherry Redstone gives the green light. Sherry Redstone, uh, the chairperson of uh, National Amusements, which is the control shareholder of Paramount. Do we have any reason to believe? I mean, she could have sold these assets at any time over the last six, seven, eight years at a drop of a hat. Why now do you think she might be open to a transaction? It's a really great question. Um, what we think is is leading to all of this now is, again, like the, the realization as far as wh what the trajectory of the business is going forward. And I alluded to, to a couple of the headwinds uh, facing the traditional yep. business already in terms of advertising and, and cord cutting. But another big piece coming up is the renegotiations with, with a few of their affiliate uh, distribution partners, and namely Charter. And if we all remember what happened with Disney uh, just only a couple months ago, we do think that this is going to be the template that at the very least Charter and, and more likely other distributors are going to look to take going forward in future ne negotiations. So that will put an additional pressure on companies like Paramount, which we've um, essentially labeled them as, as one of these cheaters of the ecosystem because they're double dipping in terms of putting their premium content, namely NFL and other sports rights, over the top on Paramount Plus. So we think Charter and others are going to look to uh, right size that that type of economics. Hey, you know, Robert, you and your partners over there, Moffat and Nathan, and again, the top of the top of the top of TMT research. But quite frankly, I'm not picking up the phone call when you guys call. I mean, I, I just don't have any reason to believe. Like, I can't figure out how any of those, how any of you guys make money at Paramount or Warner Brothers Discovery, or maybe even Disney for that matter. This whole pivot to streaming, do you guys have a view as to whether anybody can do this? I mean, Netflix has done it successfully, but that's a different model and different legacy. Can any of these traditional media companies make that pivot from, you know, the, uh, you know, the cable model to the streaming model? Yeah, I mean, we, as you probably know, we, we've long had our doubts in terms of whether streaming is, is actually a good business. And it's clear that streaming is not as good of a business a, as the old traditional uh, pay TV business for, for these companies. And so as these companies are working through this pivot and now that they don't have the, the full leeway that, that Wall Street has has initially gave them you know, coming out of COVID, um, we're, we're at the point now where they have to focus on cash flow and figure out how quickly these streaming services can really be profitable. And we do agree that, that Netflix has clearly uh, won that fight in terms of the streaming wars. Uh, we still do expect Disney to, to be a strong uh, number two player, essentially, given the assets that they have. But we think it's going to be more challenging for a lot of these other uh, traditional media companies to, to figure that out. What would be some of the implications for the viewers if this deal were actually going to go through on content and viewership? Well, what we're going through now, just back to, to the last point, is essentially like this content rationalization period where I think we've been all living in this world that we've enjoyed endless content, essentially, and, and there's almost too much out there that you can't even watch everything. 
Um, and I'm sure everyone has has their own playlist that that, that, that they haven't been able to, to get through. But I think to, to your question, um, going forward, we're, we're going to see a pullback in, in the amount of content that's being spent at these companies, again, because they need to focus on their cash flows and, and generating real profits. And that's a more challenging environment, given that that backdrop that I keep talking about and how they figure that out and how they pivot. Clearly, content spending will, will be a, a central piece to, to that to that puzzle. Robert, what's your top pick for 24? We actually cover um, sports betting too, so we're, nice. we're we're in favor of DraftKings, and clearly they've had a tremendous year that this past year. Um, but we, we think the momentum for, for DraftKings and sports betting overall is going to continue into twenty four. I mean, what's the is there what's the bear case for sports betting? Because I can't really think of one. I mean, this is just ridiculous. The appetite for this stuff. Yeah, again, DraftKings has taken a, a tremendous amount of share over 23, and and they're set up uh, nicely into 24. And what we really saw and was probably the most surprised about uh, this past year was just how quickly and, and how um, efficiently expenses have been reined in, uh, but not to any detriment to, to that top line, to your point, because the market just keeps growing really quickly. All right, Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Robert Fishman, he's a senior equity analyst at Moffitt Nathanson, talking about the potential tie-up between Paramount Global, that's the old Viacom CBS, big, big media company, and Warner Brothers Discovery, another big media company. They're both big, a lot bigger than they were five years ago, but guess what? In this new world order, they're not big enough, and so it's that whole argument we've seen in many other industries, scale. Um, and that's kind of it's certainly the play in the media space as well. So we'll stay on top of that. And the folks at Moffat Nathanson are some of the absolute best uh, research voices on the street. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. One of my all-time favorites is here. Uh, Emily, you don't know this, but Ann Maletti, uh, head of active uh, equity at Allspring Global Investments, uh, joins us here for, get this, like Menominee Falls 
Wisconsin or something. I don't know. But I went out there one time about 25 years ago, and I keep going back. So, And thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, this last, I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks, it's been such a move in the equity markets, in the treasury market. You know, you've seen this come and go a million times. What do you make of the last six, seven, eight weeks? It's been a wild ride, Paul, and um, thanks for having me on. I, it was really nice to be on this week and wish you all a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Likewise. So thanks for having me back. Um, it, look, it's been a really wild ride, and you know we are getting that Santa Claus rally, certainly a little bit even early, um, but there's a lot now with the rally that we have that maybe took a little bit away from what we thought might happen in 2024. So I think now's the time to be a little bit more disciplined about the way we enter the year. And I had the wonderful opportunity to actually meet you at your Outlook event a few weeks ago. And I'm wondering if after that Fed dovish pivot, you had to change anything from your 2024 Outlook. Well, Emily, you know, as we talked then, it, it was interesting because a lot of the things that we were pointing out is where fundamentals were pointing us for 2024. And as soon as Powell kind of said, the Fed, the Fed put is back on, mm. those things really started to ramp up. Areas like small cap, right? You know, it's an area that we've been looking at really closely for the last couple of quarters at least. The market really hasn't been paying that much attention, but that's where our investment team saw a lot of value. And as soon as it became clear from Powell that, you know, look, rates are going lower, um, those that area of the market really, really lit up. What I would say though, Emily, is where we probably want to be a little bit more cautious is the type of small cap stocks that you know um, investors enter into. There still are a lot of small cap names that don't have the best balance sheets. We're more interested in quality and looking at um, small cap stocks that have free cash flow, that have better balance sheets, those names, um, and, and margins, obviously, too, maybe the margins above 20%. Those were the names specifically that we were calling out that are durable and can last whatever we do see in 2024. Hey, and you know, one of the things that had, I think, concerned investors, certainly for the first maybe nine months of this year, was the lack of breath in this market, the Magnificent Seven driving most of the performance. But that seems to have improved a little bit. We've had the, the Russell 2000 really outperforming over the last couple of months. How do you think that's going to play into 2024? Should are you think you'll see some continued improvement in the breadth out there, or should I just jump on the Magnificent Seven for next year? You know, Paul, it's so interesting because you know, as you and I both have been trained over time, fundamentals really do matter, and. You know, it was as we really dug in and, and I did a lot of work on this, the Meg 7 really did generate good returns in 2023 because they had really good er earnings relative to the rest of the market. And so, okay, I'll give them that. But when you look at the 30% plus earnings growth that many of the Meg Stock 7, or the many of the Meg 7 had, um, at least five names out of Meg 7 grew earnings over 30%, many for over 40% in the third quarter, um, it's gonna be really hard for them to top those, you, you know, compares now become very difficult in 2024. So I think 
we were also saying, where are compares easier? And again, that showed us where the breadth of the market could be in 2024. That pointed to areas like small cap, but also areas like healthcare, where earnings growth appears to be the best almost of any other sector. Mm-hmm. As I look to 2024, 20% or more earnings growth. Though, um, no, look, it wasn't great in 2023, but we think the prospect, prospects there are pretty good in 2024. So driven by fundamentals, we think the breadth is going to be much broader in 2024. And, you know, not that the Meg 7 are bad. It's just that the the chances for them to top that growth rate is going to be a little bit more difficult. So then what does it tell you about the market that we're in, that people are still buying the Meg 7? You look at ETF flows, we saw a record inflow into SPY, S&P 500 ETF last week, $20 billion in. It looks like stocks more broadly, and a lot of this is coming from large cap, $69 billion into equity ETFs um, in December. That's the best month since 2021. What do you make of that, I guess, euphoria just piling into these large cap stocks? Or should people be pivoting into other areas then? Well, we personally think they should, Emily. And I think, you know, sometimes, and look, I think investors, generally speaking, are very, very smart. But one of the things that has gotten disjointed is this heavy overweight in these Meg 7 stocks. And so, you know, when you're buying an index, when you're buying the Russell 3000 growth, when you're buying an all just the Russell 3000, when you're buying the S&P, you're buying the most expensive names and you're buying 30, 40% of those names and much less of any other. And so, while you might think you're diversified, you're buying, you know, very chunky portions of a few names and very few of the others. And so, you know, we think taking a much more active approach and having um, fewer names, but owning a broader portfolio makes sense at this point in the market. And we think returns can be better. Now, it's not surprising to me that those ETF flows are going there just because of the structure of the indexes. But we think it should change and we think it will change when the performance of the other names um, starts to show that they can produce the fundamentals that I talked about earlier. Hey, Ann, how about valuation here in the market? We've had a big, big move higher. I don't, I'm not sure we've necessarily had a commensurate increase in earnings here. How do you guys think about valuation here? Yeah, that's what makes me a little bit nervous, Paul. You know, I, it, it, you know, certainly I can point to the 493 names that aren't as highly valued as the overall market, but I do think we do need to see some catch up, and we do need to see the fundamentals play out. And so, you know, I don't love the fact that we've had this really strong rally here, and I do think we're entering 2024 with a much foggier environment. Um, yes, inflation has come down, but you know, we have problems with the Red Sea right now. The geopolitical risks as we enter 2024, you could say, are much higher than when we entered 2023. It's a political year, um, an election year. Now, typically those end up being up markets, but typically also pretty volatile. And so I think, you know, it's going to be much more challenging than investors believe today. Um, That being said, we think we'll end up having an up year, but it's not going to be up 
you know, double digit. We think it's going to be kind of up single digit, maybe high single digit, but expect it to be a rocky one. What's the biggest macro risk for next year that you don't think enough people are talking about? Yeah, I, I still think it's geopolitical, right? We're, we're definitely focused on interest rates right now and whether the Fed gets it right or wrong and, you know, whether we have a soft or hard landing. But it's always, you know, uh, you know, Paul probably would also agree with this. It's, it's never the, the things we spend the most time worrying about. It's the big surprises that come out of nowhere that really have the, the, the most dramatic impact to the market. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it seems to be that probably a geopolitical risk, but maybe one that we're not even considering today. And as always, thank you so much for joining us. That is the Great, Anne Maletti, Head of Active Equities at Allspring Global Advisors. And I've said it before many times, and I'll say it again. Pound for pound, I think some of the best investors I've ever come in contact with over my career are in Milwaukee. I, I don't know why. I, maybe it's the great University of Mo- Wisconsin. Um, but, boy, there's just so many firms, large and small, in Milwaukee that have some really smart uh, investors and have you know really good track records over a long period of time. So you wouldn't necessarily think it. I'm telling you, Maybe I have to take a reporting trip there. Absolutely. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk Apple here. I mean, here we are, the holiday selling season. It's kind of important for people... Uh, that sell stuff, and Apple's certainly a company that sells stuff. One of the things they sell are those watches. I'm not an Apple watch wearer. Are either of you an Apple watch wearer? Nope. Right now. Uh, Nora's got it. Okay, great. Um, No, I like a watch that tells time. So, um, But apparently they're having a little bit of an issue here. Uh, Mark Gurman joins us here, uh, chief technology correspondent for Bloomberg News. Uh, Mark, put it into context. A, tell us what's happening with Apple, and B, kind of put it into context. Like, does it matter? Well, yes, it certainly matters. And uh, to tell you what's happening here, it's, it's an unprecedented situation. This is the first time in the modern era or probably in the entirety of Apple's 40 plus year history where the company is being forced to stop sales of one of its core products in the United States. That core product being the Apple Watch Series 9 and the Apple Watch Ultra 2. Those make up probably 80 plus percent of all Apple Watch sales, the two newest models. They only sell three models, so two of the three models are impacted here. It was a patent dispute with the company in Southern California called Mossimo, and the International Trade Commission of the U.S. ruled that Apple is violating two of Mossimo's patents related to blood oxygen saturation, right? That's the app on the Apple Watch. You click it, it'll tell you your blood oxygen. Most people are looking for a percentage between 95% and 100%. That's in violation. Two things happening, a season desist on Apple being able to sell the watch in the US, as well as an import ban, an injunction, so they can no longer import Apple watches manufactured outside of the US. All Apple watches are built outside of the US for those uh, watching at home. So that's the fundamental issue there, right? So starting on Christmas day, the end of the day, December 25th, the Apple watch sales in the US, are no more when it comes to the Ultra 2 and the Series 9. Now, given that we're talking now and it's Thursday morning, starting at 3 p.m. Eastern time, the Apple Watch will no longer be sold on Apple's online store. Apple retail stores in the U.S., they have about 270 of them. 
they're closed Christmas Day. So December 24th, Christmas Eve, is going to be the last day of in-store retail sales. Now, for those who still want to buy an Apple Watch before the end of the year, maybe for themselves or a gift or what have you, Apple's not allowed to tell you this for legal reasons, but I can tell you, you can still get one at Best Buy, Target, wherever they're sold other than Apple retail stores. What's the history between Apple and Massimo? I'm so curious how Apple got involved in a a patent dispute. I mean, you think of Apple, one of the largest, most important companies. How how could something like this happen to Apple? Yeah, so Massimo actually sued Apple uh, in 2020, in January 2020, related to 10 patents on health sensing technology, right? Then in September 2020, Apple introduced the Apple Watch Series 6. That was the first Apple Watch that includes the blood oxygen feature. Now, Massimo, they're known uh, for their contributions and patents related to blood oxygen. So they preemptively sued Apple in anticipation of this watch coming out. Then once the watch came out, they filed an injunction claim with the International Trade Commission of the US asking for the watch sales to be banned. Now that was filed in 2021. That is not actually going into effect until, like I said, the end of the day, Christmas Day. So it took two years and change for it actually to go into effect. Massimo says they met with Apple 10 years ago, back in 2013, before the first Apple Watch was introduced. Apple promised them some sort of partnership or discussed hiring them or licensing from them. In the end, what Apple did is they ended up hiring about 20 to 25 of their individual engineers and executives, hired them to come work at Apple, offered them more significant salaries, and they worked on the Apple Watch without Apple needing to partner with Massimo. So Massimo considered this a trade secret violation, so they sued Apple over that. In addition to this hire, these hiring concerns, plus the patent concerns that have been ongoing now, uh, the first lawsuit, like I said, in the beginning of 2020. And now this is the ultimate uh, pushback against Apple, this injunction and cease and desist. Now, what I will tell you is the lawsuit related to the trade secret situation, that actually ended a few months ago and ended in a hung jury. So these two things, while related, the same companies, Uh, this ITC ruling was able to happen uh, exclusive away from the lawsuit. Uh, Mark, what is Apple saying in response here? Yeah, Apple is saying that they're going to take every legal method possible to get the Apple Watch back on sale. They're complying with the order. Uh, They believe it wouldn't be so hot if they didn't comply. Uh, What I'm hearing is that Apple is trying to fix this via a software update. So that software update uh, has been in development now for several weeks. Uh, What needs to be done is they need to test it. They need to get some sort of uh, testing done related to regulatory, given that the Apple Watch is in some cases used. Uh, for health purposes, right? So there's an extra layer of testing that needs to be done internally. Uh, the blood oxygen feature is not regulated, so they don't have to deal with the healthcare regulators or the FDA. But what they need to do is get approval from the US Customs Agency. They need to submit that software update to the agency. The agency has to review it, and then they make the final determination of if the season desist and the import ban should be lifted or not. When do you expect to see this actually hit Apple's earnings, Apple's stock price. I mean, I'm looking at um, the HCP function on the Bloomberg terminal right now. I see that this week is looking to be its first down week in over seven weeks, a seven week win streak. This will be the first down week down about 1.5% right now. But when do we actually see this come up in the price action? Yeah, so the, the the sales and the revenue uh, for the first quarter, right, that runs through the end of December. So December uh 30th or 31st, 
So I don't anticipate an impact on Apple's revenue that they're going to announce for Q1. They'll, they'll, they'll announce those numbers at the tail end of January or at the beginning of February. But what I could tell you is that they're going to probably get impacted on their Q2 or Q3, depending on how long this rolls for. I would anticipate a several hundred million dollar headwind here, uh, which is not extraordinarily material to Apple, but certainly is worth discussing. And it is the difference between a growth quarter and a non-growth quarter, right? All you have to do to grow is uh, generate $1 more than you did in the quarter of the year prior, right? So if you're down several hundred million or a couple billion, uh, you're not going to get that flexibility and you might have a down quarter when you otherwise would have had an up quarter. But the big question is how long this is going to take. Uh, my guess is probably around three months, unless we have some surprising stay order from the federal government or some sort of last minute veto but I, I don't really expect either of those. Mark, what's the uh, for what are you looking for out of Apple in 2024? Is there, are there any products that we need to be, need to be on the lookout for? Uh, any new services that you think they might try to pursue? Any any anything else that's on your horizon? Well, the Vision Pro, right? That's all anyone in the Apple world is talking about right now. That's their first mixed reality headset. I don't think it's going to be a big revenue driver, but it's certainly going to be awesome. Uh, the other big thing is Apple. When is that? Do, do, do we know when that's going to happen? The Vision Pro, that's going to come out by by February, so okay. probably at the tail end of January. Or now, are you going to be one of those tech geeks that's going to get one of these? Uh, yes. Yes. I will be <laughs> Spend the whole paycheck at, on yes. a Vision Pro. He's going to expense it. Who's kidding who? All right, so that's coming up in February. That's interesting. Now, how's the company positioning that thing? Well, they're not. They haven't talked much about it since the introduction uh, in June. It's pretty nascent. Like you said, it's pretty expensive. Uh, with tax, it's probably coming up against a uh, $4,000 threshold Whoa. for most people. And so it is pretty pricey. I think the big marketing push is going to start sort of more in the middle of the year. Obviously, when they release cheaper models, that's going to be a significant development. You asked about services. I think you're going to see uh, Apple walk into the generative AI space this year. You'll oh, see okay. introductions in June around Gen AI, integrating large language models into the iPhone. So that's going to be a quite significant initiative for the company, too, even though they're going to be about a year and a half behind everyone else. Mark, I don't know if you know it, but Michigan's playing in the Rose Bowl. You're in Southern California. Are you going to the game? I will not. <laughs> but I'll not be walking. Going? Aren't you a good Michigan man? I'm a good Michigan man, but I'm pretty focused on the Lakers these days. Uh, I see the uh, Jersey Kobe in the background, so good for you. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. A lot of folks, as they think about 2024, as Vince was just mentioning, the the sentiment seems to have changed to really leaning towards that soft landing. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's still some concern out there. Seema Shah joins us. She's a senior global investment strategist at Principal Global uh, Investors joining us via Zoom. Seema, thanks so much for taking the time here. I know you guys have your 2024 outlook out. And I'm just seeing kind of a, the focus here on pivot, pivot, pivot. What do you mean by that in 24? Yeah, it's a, it's a play on that friends line. <clears throat> uh, well, look, I, I think, you know, we, we published that a few weeks before the Fed spoke. I don't think any of us anticipated that the Fed would shift in in such a manner and so quickly. But clearly, you know, I think the inflation data is certainly backing up that idea that 2024 is no longer just the year of the pause, but it's actually mainly going to be about the pivot. And for risk assets, almost whichever way you look at it, there's going to be nuances. But overall, this should be a fairly good year for risk assets simply because those central banks are going to be uh, are going to be pivoting and importantly it's not going to be you know it's it's going to be supported by a not too unhealthy backdrop as well Seema, you've you've seen a lot of year end markets how crazy has the buying frenzy in equities been for this year end just compared to the rest of your career it's only very aggressive you know i think that it's 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 aggressive, but it's also not entirely unexpected because as we've been going through this year, every time we've been talking to investors, declines, and this is anywhere around the world, in Asia, Europe, the US, it's pretty much the same thing. The questions that we've been getting are generally along the lines of, you know, when are we going to know what the Fed is doing? When will they peak? They're, they're kind of just waiting to put their money to work. Uh, so they, the uncertainty has been clouding a lot of investors' minds. But they haven't had any concerns that this is going to be a downturn or there would be a downturn that would be very destructive that would see any kind of permanent disruption to the underlying economy. And if you don't think there's going to be permanent underlying damage, then essentially what you're doing is you're just trying to time the market. So when you know uh, things are clearly going to be an upward move. So as soon as we saw um, any indication actually at the bank at the end of October that Chair Powell was having a slight shift in stance, that was, you know, opening the airwaves, opening the doors to a, a huge flood um, into that equity space. Now, I, I do actually think that Q1 is going to be a little bit more volatile uh, and you're going to have to see investors be strong in the face of that volatility. But overall, as I look out over 2024, I think investors are right to be taking on this slightly more optimistic perspective. Seema, so uh, the Fed, I guess, was clear, maybe clearer than they wanted to be about their, uh, you know, uh, being open to being a little bit more dovish here. How about the uh, the Bank of England, the, the European Central Bank? What, what are we hearing out of those institutions? So again, it's a very, very similar sentiment. And again, backed up similar to the US by a clear decline in inflation. Actually in Europe, in your area, 
it's been extra interesting because the inflation has been um inflation has actually come down faster than it went up which is unusual you know you kind of hear the analogies of inflation takes um the escalator up and stairs down was the opposite way for for europe so inevitably the ecb has had to acknowledge that and they have also taken a dovish stance same thing with the bank of england but i think the key difference that you're seeing is that they are retaining an element of caution they are still worried that if they were to cut rates too early you would see that renewed drive up in inflation so whereas they're acknowledging that there's likely to be a pivot in 2024, they have pushed back a lot harder at the idea that you could see rate cuts as soon as March. If you were working at the Fed, what would stop you from declaring victory right now? Is it the labor market? There's a couple of things. Um, I, you know, I, like everyone else, has probably poured over uh, Waller's speech, the two different speeches that he gave a couple of weeks apart. And he had said at that point that he needed to see a couple of months of clear inflation evidence, that it was disinflation to that three-month three month rate was moving down sufficiently. Uh, and in the end, he only saw one month of that and he had enough evidence. To me, I would be a little bit more cautious. I'd say, well, look, let's get a series of those numbers to know for sure, because if you look back, to the 70s, 80s period when you did have very high inflation, the Fed made the mistake of cutting rates too early and then that drove inflation to a new high. Um, so I would certainly be a little bit more concerned, especially knowing um, that as you know, an unemployment rate of 3.7% is extraordinarily uh, low. It's a very, very tight labor market. And so I would need to see some more evidence of a slight economic slowdown. Obviously, you don't need to recession. Uh, but sending it more evidence of slowing economic ac activity and unwinding labor market before I felt sufficiently confident to start cutting interest rates. So, Simu, where the good folks at Principal Global Investors, where do you, where do you guys see the opportunity in, in 2024? We've had such a move here in this last uh, six, seven, eight weeks. I think people are very happy with the performance, but they're saying, oh, boy, now what do I do in 2024? Right. And, and this is a time where, you know, we have to start thinking about valuations. What are the valuations? Uh, what are the signals coming to us? So from the equity space, uh, you know, we know that Magnificent Seven have driven, you know, most of the gains this year, but their valuations are very, very expensive. And although we are long term holders of some of those really big tech stocks, there is something to be said for some of that small cap universe. Those valuations are attractive. If you believe that there's going to be a cyclical recovery around the second half of the year, but to me, this is a good time to be ready to ride some of the volatility down um, in the first quarter or so, but knowing that you will be well positioned for the upside. So I think that that valuation set level is, is important. From a credit perspective, credit spreads are extremely tight, historic tights. Knowing that there's going to be a little bit of a slowdown in around Q2, Q3, I worry a little bit about some of the lower quality aspects of the credit spectrum. So I'd be entirely focused on that core fixed income space. And the other part of this is, is as much as we know or feel that there is going to be a central bank pivot, there is still a lingering inflation risk. Uh, you know, economic theory tells you as long as growth is above target, there's always going to be the risk that inflation resurges. And we know that bonds have not done very well in protecting uh, when inflation is moving up. So I still think that that means uh, you need to have some kind of exposure to real assets in your portfolio. It doesn't need to be too much, but at least that broad diversification. So you're protected against a couple of scenarios which... To our minds, um, they're not entirely throwaway. You still have to consider them. What about outside the U.S.? Is that an area to invest in for 2024? 
I think there are certainly opportunities. The main area that we're looking at at the moment is it's still in emerging markets, but ex-China. Uh, the beauty at the moment is that you can actually think about emerging markets without having to, to consider some of the downturn that's going on in China. So the areas that we're looking at are Latin America primarily. Again, we're looking at very, very cheap valuations. You've got central banks, which are already cutting interest rates. Um, and also you have the ability to ride onto a secular theme of deglobalization, so kind of the regionalization of supply chains, as well as the fact that some of the uh, natural resources that would be coming into play as you think about the energy transition are actually coming from Latin America. So you can have a number of secular plays by positioning in Latin America at a time where valuations are extraordinarily um, attractive at this point. So China, um, it's such a big part of the MSCI, but I guess from your perspective, the, the risk is not, the reward is not worth that risk? We do have, yeah, we do have concerns about China still lingering. You know, we've seen from the the recent conference that the policymakers are not planning to to move in with with big stimulus. They're still thinking about quality growth, which, of course, from a long term perspective, is positive. But as long as you're not seeing the property market respond in a way that would improve confidence, then the Chinese economy is going to be struggling. And the one thing I come back to is. If you do a quick comparison of the US property market and the Chinese property market, just to give you an idea, in the US, the property market accounts for about 30% of US household wealth. In China, that number is 60%. Wow. So as long as the property market yep. is struggling in China, then it's very difficult to see a meaningful economic recovery. And without that recovery, I think investors stay very, very cautious and you just don't see those flows back into Chinese equities. It's great analysis. That's always love that data point. I'm going to use that. I'll, I will. I'll. Credit SEMA, but I will definitely use that. SEMA Shah, Senior Global Investment Strategist over there, Principal Global Investments uh, in London, One Wood Street, great part of town, just outside of the city. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.